But let's jump right in because I got some stuff that I want to share with you. As I said, we've started to transition to the final part of this series, and I know we've been in it for a while, but, but it's very imperative that we understand that this is crucial going forward. You know, there are a lot of things that are talked about with the end times, and I hope you guys recognize how close to the end we are. Now, I know every generation that's come before us has said that, so here's what we know. We're closer today than we were yesterday. We know that for a fact. They've been in the end times since the Holy Spirit fell, since Jesus went up. I mean, all, it's been the end times since that day. There are parts of Scripture where they were concerned that they missed it. I mean, that tells you how long this has been going on. But things are starting to move, and things are starting to uptick, if you will, in a way that in our generation perhaps we haven't seen. And so it is imperative that we get back to understanding why we are here and what we are here to do. Because it is so misalign in our country. And I say our country because there are parts of the world that gets it. When you go down to El Salvador as an example, their relationship with God is at the center of the things that they do. And the reason you can make the argument that the reason why they have nothing else to do. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. When you go to the Philippines, when I was out there, the church was at the center of everything they did. They've all got issues. Everybody's got issues. But it was the sinful, because this is where the, the church gathered together to have an encounter with God, for lack of a better term. An encounter with God, where you heard the word preached, and you gathered together to pray and to worship and to do all of these things. And so what has happened is in America, we have transitioned from talking about who God is and how you relate to Him, to more about who you are and how God relates to you. And that's the problem. Because when you become the center of the universe you got a problem, and that's what it's become. If you, you'll see this. The, I mean, it's, it's, it must be the time of the year. The Facebook theologians are out right now that are talking about all the things wrong with the church, and the church should do this, or the church should do this. I mean, I've been having conversations this week with people about this very thing. But do you know what that means? When, it implied, when you imply something that the church should be doing, it means that you know that what the right thing is to do. Well, where'd you get that information? How'd you come to that conclusion? Everybody talks about the church is not loving enough, the church is not inclusive enough, the church is, is too stringent in its rules and regulations. And some of that might be correct, but the thing is, is when you make that statement, you're implying that you have a message from God that tells you that that is wrong, and therefore the way you want it done is right. Now, where do we get that information? How should the church operate? How should the people that make up the church live their lives? Where do we get that? It always comes back to Scripture. Always comes back to Scripture. And so here we are in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. So if you've given your life to Christ and you are a new creation, then why do we continue to wallow as if we're not? Why do we continue to walk as if God has not completely transformed our lives? We want to have this religion of where we talk about Jesus, but he has no transformational power. So whatever the past was is the present now. Whatever happened in our childhood is what we have to deal with now when we have to overcome. What happened when we read in the book of Acts how when somebody came in and by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, they were instantly transformed. We watched it happen with Jim when he was sharing about his testimony, right? He didn't slowly wean himself off the bottle. God got involved and completely transformed his life and there are tons of that kind of stuff that we talk about the man that came in in a wheelbarrow he didn't leave in the wheelbarrow in case you weren't here let me preface this because this won't make any sense if i don't 
is that Jim was preaching at a service and a man was brought in who was an alcoholic, the city drunk, down in El Salvador. And they wheeled him in in a wheelbarrow because he couldn't walk. The man was demonically possessed. Jim recognized it and immediately rebuked the enemy, cast that thing out of him. That man is now building churches today. Why didn't he go to AA? Think about that. But that's how we act. We slowly change. That's not what this says. We're new. So we should act new. Romans 8 verse 6 says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So if we're new, why are we thinking carnally? Why are we acting carnally? Why are we not living spiritually? Because according to that, that's where we find life and peace. I don't know about you all, but I kind of like peace. You guys know anybody that gets worked up with all the news going on right now? They drive me crazy. As if your worry makes Ukraine any better off. Or whatever's going on. It'd be anything. The economy. Gas prices. I don't like them either. I drive a diesel. I really don't like them. Yeah, you know. The thing is, is like, what is worrying about it going to do? Nothing. See, to be spiritually minded is to know that God meets all my needs. It's according to his riches and glory. I don't care what's going on. I'll just pray about it. God will take care of this. You see, we're new creations, so we should be spiritually minded, yet we have new creations that are still carnally minded, and they still want to wallow in whatever mess that they came out of. Why you'd ever turn back to that, I don't know. I had a guy one time tell me this is a, an illusion, but it's like somebody left the dump after living there all their life, full of garbage and dirty diapers and all the stuff that had been thrown at them their entire life, and finally God get involved, and they leave, and they move out, and they get to do this new stuff. But for some reason, they don't like the nice smelling stuff, so they go back to the dump. We do that all the time because we have taken God, transformed him into our image and made him look and sound like us. And it's sad that he's such a miserable, miserable God. Second Corinthians chapter 10 says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. See, we've talked about all of this as if when the enemy moves and he comes and he attacks and whatever, what do we do? We want to argue naturally, but yet we have to stand on something spiritual. The spiritual world is alive and well, moving like today, just like he always has, and there's been things going on. Are they getting worse? Probably not. Maybe we're more observant to it. I don't know what the answer is there, but the thing is, is that we have to be aware of our surroundings. Ephesians 6 says to put on the whole armor of God that you be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the methods of which he attacks. So what do we do? We do what it says. Put on that armor. We stand and know that what he is bringing against us is not life and it is not peace. It is carnal. He wants you to react carnally. I know I've said this before, but with this whole pandemic thing, the church got exposed. We were the wizard of Oz. We were behind that curtain showing this big, powerful thing, but it was time to put up. What did we do? We shut up. Sad. Sad. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing the same suffering experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So he's attacking. Believer, non-believer, doesn't matter. He's moving. We have the ability and the responsibility to do something about it. We should be walking around with our head held high, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that our faith is in the Word of God. And the Word of God is what captures the event of what, who Jesus is and what He said based upon the Old Testament from the very beginning that God created everything and from there expands upon. But that's not what we do. 
We want to argue with them. We want to justify our bad ideas and bad behaviors. That's where this deconstruction movement comes in. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, Jesus spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So all authority is given to him. And what does he do? Now you, my disciples, you go into all the world, you preach the gospel, and you make disciples. But we don't do that today. We want to sit, and we want to have church, we want to feel something, we want goosebumps. We are not on mandate from God. We're too comfortable. I think it is in El Salvador. Don't they go out every Sunday after service and go out and knock doors and pray for people? Every Sunday. That's what they do. Y'all, it's hot down there. Time to relax. Football game's on. Turn on the air conditioning. They don't have air conditioning. They need it. Y'all, that's what we need to pray for right there. I mean, what do we do? We go to Sunday. We maybe go to Wednesday. And we just live our lives. But what if God was at the center of our lives and how we lived and we took him everywhere we go? And the reason I'm saying this is because the church is so pathetic today that we forget that everywhere we go, the temple of the Holy Spirit is moving with it. Everywhere we go. The story you told last week, that she's there to clean the office recognized something was going on, sought help because it wasn't 100% confident she could handle it on her own. Could she? Absolutely. Was she confident of it? Obviously not. But she knew what to do. You know what she didn't do? She didn't burn sage. She didn't do any of that weird stuff. She called fellow believers. They came in. They rebuked the enemy. It saved the business. To this day, do the owners of that even know? Do they have any idea? You told them? You get a discount now? No? All right. But I mean, think about that. This is somebody who's just living their everyday life. Do you realize that the stories encapsulated in the book of Acts, the majority of them are people who are just wandering somewhere, living their life, and saw and had an encounter with God. That's all it was. These were not necessarily people called to some big ministry or something like that. These were everyday Job's. Christianity being where it is today, in fact, it's got over here to the States and where we are, is most of the time involving people who were just everyday Joes doing their thing, leading their families, talking to their co-workers, neighbors, friends, whatever. Completely different than what we have today. In John 10.10, I read this last week, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, what is he talking about here? Who was the thief? It was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the leaders of the Sanhedrin. The one that had to declare Messiah is here. They refused, not because they didn't know, because they would not allow it to be because he did not fit their criteria. And as a result of that, they kept the nation of Israel from embracing their Messiah and coming into salvation. And as a result of that, it's been opened up to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are supposed to make the Israelites jealous that they may yearn once again for their God. Jesus will not return until they call on the name of the Lord and beg for him to come back. So what happened is that they were lied to by the people. The thief is not the devil. The thief was the guys that was in charge that were teaching. And what I told you is that that still happens because we as the church have been lied to. We have been told we need to be quiet. We have told we just need to sit back, 
depending on how you were brought up in it, maybe denomination or whatnot, you were told that, yes, you either you give your life to Christ through a salvific experience or you experience salvation through something you do, i.e. a communion, confirmation, perhaps it's baptism, whatever it is, that's how you get right with God. The problem is, is that's not what Scripture says. So we like to pick and choose the scriptures we want. We like to take them out of context and make them say stuff that fit our narrative. We've been lied to. But there's another part we've been lied to. See, salvation is the most important thing that can ever happen. It's the greatest miracle that it can ever take place in a human being's life. Because it doesn't just affect them on earth. Healing is exciting. When you see, and I read some of these old stories about people who are in wheelchairs and they get up, or blind eyes that are open, or ears that were open, or whatever the case may be, those are exciting, but those are temporary, because that person's still going to die at some point. But when they're saved, that salvation experience, they're transformed from death to life, old to new. There's nothing great. There is no greater miracle. But the moment that happens, something should take place that they are now on mission, on mandate from God. It's not about them anymore. The disciple has been birthed. Now he must be trained. And what is he being trained to do? To go and make disciples. See, in Mark 16, it says, Believer lays hand on the sick and they will recover. Who are the believers? That immediately follows the part that go and preach the gospel to every creature and those who believe will be saved. And then it goes on. It's talking about those individuals who had been born again. So we've been lied to and there's another part of this that we often overlook. Now we talk about it. We believe it here, but it's implied. It's been a while since I've taught on this, this subject, but it's important. I want to show you something here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we have sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now, we should, if we stopped there... Imagine if we just took this part, what that would do to the church if we just simply believed it and lived it. That we, he died for all, and those who live should no longer live for themselves. Wouldn't that be a change? But we live for him, therefore, verse 16, and now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Does that sound familiar now? Now you catch the context. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now stop there. Now what is that? The word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, is the ability to go there and boldly claim that when you receive Jesus' sacrifice and you take him as Lord and Savior, you are now reconciled to God. No previous generation from this point on before could ever make that statement because they weren't reconciled to God. 
they were atoned for up until that point. But when Jesus came, the sacrifices no longer were necessary because the greatest offerer and the greatest offering had already been poured out. And so now he has given these guys the ministry of reconciliation that through Jesus, they have a mandate to go on. Now look at verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How do we do that? It's through His Son. So if that is true, then we have to ask ourselves this question. Why is the church so pathetic? And the reason it is, is because we either have a a cursory understanding of this, or we've twisted this to fit some denominational standard, or we've simply ignored what Jesus did in full and what He had promised. You see, what we got to ask questions. What was Jesus doing here? Why did he come? He came as the Passover lamb. But greater than that, I shouldn't say greater than that. That's the wrong way to phrase that. But in addition to that, he came for something more. 1 John chapter 3, verse 80 says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did he come? To destroy the works of the devil. What was the purpose of the Son of God? To destroy the works of the devil. Did he accomplish that? Yes. Why is he a roaring lion and not an attacking lion? Because he's been destroyed. See, the works of the devil, you could argue, is death in and of itself. Because of sin, death has entered into the world. Prior to Adam's sin, there was no death. So Jesus came to take away the keys of death. Therefore, if death doesn't control you and we don't fear it, there is nothing left to keep us from walking into the purpose that God has created us for. And don't misunderstand me when I say that because I know it's a buzzword. The purpose of us walking in the fullness of Christ is not for our benefit to have these nice houses and all that stuff. That can happen. That's all well and good. It is to be on service for the Lord. We lose sight of that. So the reason that Jesus came and what he was doing here was to destroy the works of the devil. If he has done that, then why do we walk around defeated? We walk around defeated because we don't believe it. Because the moment something happens, we're like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Because we don't believe what his word said. You see, part of it was, when I talked about this, the four messianic miracles that he came to perform that he did, was a sign to them that he truly was the Son of God, because only God himself could perform those things. And those were powerful. All of the miracles, all the signs, all the wonders would grab people's attention. But it was also interesting that they talked about him and the way that he spoke, because nobody teaches like him. He speaks as one having authority. There's a difference. All of those things should be transferred to us. You should speak as one who has authority because all authority has been given to him, so therefore we go and make disciples. You guys see how this is starting to come full circle. But the question is, is that yes, Jesus performed them, but how? And this is something that often gets misunderstood. Let's look at John chapter 1. I'm going to introduce something today. Most of you guys are familiar with this, but I'm going to go a little bit in depth. But we're going to build upon this in the next couple of weeks. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John, 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, this is referring to John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He confessed and did not die, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, why were they thinking he might be? He was gathering a following. There were people looking at him. There's a possibility miracles were taking place underneath his leadership. We don't know. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Then he said, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Now, here's the thing. Who sent them? It would have been the Pharisees, the guys in charge of the Sanhedrin, because they would investigate any time a messianic figure would arise. And this happened multiple times. And what did he say? He said, I am, verse 23, the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So what did he do? He recognized his fulfillment, founded in the Old Testament Scripture, a prophecy that was referring to him. Now, those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, let me stop. You've got to understand baptism is not what we think it is. Because in, during this time, it's probably still true today, but I don't know this for fact, uh, in, in a Jewish system, is people would mikvah frequently, which was a cleansing, a ceremonial cleansing that they would go through. But any time that they would follow the teachings of a new leader, now remember, there were many sects of Judaism, Herodians, Essenes, all of these guys, Pharisees, Sadducees, there were others. And when they would enter in and start to follow that, they would be baptized by the leader, and it was a sign that I am now one with your teaching, I am a disciple of you. Okay? So as John was baptizing people, and most of the time they would never touch them, they would go under the water on their own power, so it wasn't like what we see today. I don't know where that came from, it's just what we do. There's nothing wrong with it. But they would go under their own power, they would come up, and now they were associating with the teaching of John. John was gathering a big following. Messiah would gather a big following. There must be something to this. Okay. Now, as they questioned him, why do you baptize if you're not Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? John answered, verse 26, I baptize with water, but there is one among you whom you do not know. So if the person's here, but you don't know him. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, how did John know that? Something about it. He recognized him. What did he call him? The Lamb of God. What is he referring to? That Passover lamb, that sacrifice. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him, and I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, what just transpired here? How did Jesus do it? What happened? John baptized him, and it says the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Now, don't think that this dove is floating down. I've seen a lot of bad pictures, one of which was a dove on fire, and that's just weird, okay? That's not what was happening. But in the manner of a dove, the lightning very lightly came upon him. The key was he stayed. That was a sign to John that this was the Messiah. This was the Son of God. This was his testimony. 
We see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it says Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan that he might be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? But Jesus said to him, permit it to be so now. But thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Now, I know there's an argument. I've taught on that about the high priest and the role that John the Baptist had and all that. I don't have time to go into that. But there's more to what's there. And if you want to know more, ask me later. Verse 16, when he had been baptized... Jesus came immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and he suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So now we're getting a little bit more information here from Matthew's writings. But the statement wasn't anything new. It actually comes from two Messianic scriptures. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it says, I will decree, uh, declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or today I have set you apart. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, it says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom I, my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now think about this, you're standing there, likely in line to be baptized by John. Here's this guy that John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, they were not anticipating the Messiah to be sacrificed. They were anticipating the Messiah who was the reigning king. The one they're still waiting for today. John argues with him, no, I should be baptized by you. But Jesus says, no, this must be done. And again, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. And when they do, a voice from heaven, behold, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And you're standing there in line. Now, what would your reaction be? Now, they seem to be completely unfazed by that. There's no record of it. But this actually is a common thing that would take place during this time. There are a lot of writings about these types of voices that would happen. Rabbinic experts would teach that there was something called like an echo voice. And it was frequently heard in ancient Israelites during the silent period. What we call that 400 years. But it had gotten quiet. And so during the prophets ended around the 5th century with Malachi... And this bat kol, which is the Hebrew term for it, becomes the primary means of communication. The silent period is that there were no prophets speaking on behalf of God. So they talked about this echo voice, or it was something like a cooing dove is how they would describe it. Now you have like a dove, him coming upon him. Now here's the thing, and this is what you've got to catch. Prior to this moment, was Jesus the Son of God? Absolutely. But not a single miracle was ever performed before this moment. Now, there's a lot to that. As I said, you've got to understand the implications going on with John there. But there is something powerful here. You see, this is where we have been lied to. We've been taken away. We've undermined the truth of the Scriptures. And there's basically two camps. One where what I'm about to talk about doesn't exist. And one that that's all that exists. And I'm talking about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I want to choose my words carefully. Because in Scripture, it talks about three baptisms. So first we've got to understand what the word baptism means. It means immersion. When you hear baptism, what do you think? Every time, always water. What we always think of. But the problem is, is if that's true, we have some Scripture that makes it very confusing. Let me show you a couple. The first one is the baptism into the body of Christ, okay? What we would call salvation. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, 
Baptized into Christ means immersed into the body of Christ. Okay? This does not imply water baptism. It is talking about salvation. Let me show you another one. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, it's not referencing a water baptism experience. It is talking about the salvation experience of which now you are immersed and identified with Christ. You are now one with him. This is what we call the salvation moment, the born again thing. I mean, whatever you want to call it doesn't matter. It's what takes place here. Now, this is crucial. Now, you'll notice with that, it continues to talk about why should we continue to live in sin? I don't know. Someone should let the church know because we don't want to be holy because he's holy. We want to call on holiness and make it fit what we want. So if this is salvation, we have to ask the question then, who is doing it? Because that is what separates the three baptisms, as you'll see here momentarily. Who is performing this baptism? Well, we have to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Now, who did the baptizing there? It was the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit baptizes into Christ. Holy Spirit. This is what we would call, there's supposed to be an R there. You can tell. This is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. It talks constantly about how the Spirit draws them in that they might be saved. This is the work of the Holy Spirit today. He baptizes people into Christ. He immerses them into salvation. So this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there is obviously more to it. Because what's the second type of baptism? Well, it's the one that we always think about. It's the baptism in water. It is not necessary for salvation, but it is important. The reason it's important is because it's said it is in Scripture. And that's what we go by. In Matthew 28, verse 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there are a multitude of verses that I'm not going to read just for the simple sake of time, but we know this one. But who does it? Who baptizes into water? It's not the Holy Spirit, and it's not Jesus. It's a disciple. It doesn't have to be your pastor. It can be whoever. It can be a father, a mother, doesn't matter. So we got number one, and we got number two. Now, you can see a distinction. Again, if I was going to spend a lot more time on this, it would be more clear. There are a multitude of verses that you can look at that says the exact same thing. Number one, number two. Most people never argue with this. They probably wouldn't choose the word baptizes because that's not what we think of when we think. We think about water. But to, to a Jewish person, that's not necessarily what they think of, that they are associating themselves now with the teaching of whomever their, their new uh, disciple is. But there's a third one, and this is where we've missed it. We've got number one, get that frequently. Number two, sometimes it's done without number one. 
But number three is crucial. Because number three is what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to share this with you because you've got to understand something. When the Gospels mention something, it's worth reading. And there's something that all four Gospels mention. Four things all four Gospels mention. There's only four things that all four Gospels mention. First was Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, and Jesus' resurrection. I, would, I don't know about you, but I call those pretty important things. But the fourth one is what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, as we're looking at this, we see the Holy Spirit baptizes into Christ. We see the disciples will baptize into water. Well, who baptizes in the Holy Spirit? We should do what we do on every other thing. Let's go see what Scripture says. Because Scripture is what tells us this. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, who is he? This is Jesus. All right, let's go look at Mark chapter 1, verse 8. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who's he? This isn't complicated. Go ahead and shout it out if you know the answer. There you go. Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answers saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Who's he? You're catching on. Good, good. One more. John chapter 1, verse 33. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And one more time, who is the he? Jesus. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now here's the question. You don't have to be a theologian to, to figure this out. Just based grammatically, is there any way that these three things are the same? They can't be. Then why does this often get left out? The reason it gets left out is because we don't like it. I say we. I'll say the church doesn't like it. Because the church doesn't like people who speak authoritatively. The church doesn't like people who walk around like Jesus did, authoritatively. Walking in the fullness of power of the Holy Spirit. We don't like that. We don't like the things that seem to associate with that. I'm saying we, the church. We like it. But these cannot be the same thing, just strictly grammatically. Now, I know this might be a little different for some of you. Some of you guys have heard this, but they can't be the same thing. You see, oftentimes, when you're born again, they will tell you, you receive the Holy Spirit, and that is correct. But that's not what Jesus was meant to do. It says he baptized you with the Holy Spirit and with power, with power and fire. I mean, there's a lot of things associated with that. But the internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit and the external, the upon portion of the Holy Spirit are not one and the same. They can't be because of grammar. I hate grammar. Okay? I hate it. I used to get accused of dangling a participle all the time. You know what was sad? I had to look up what a participle was. And then, why am I dangling it? Don't even know what that means. So here we are. We look at this and we're like, okay, if this is true, then... Why did John make such a declaration that it's him who comes after me? So, this is important, right? Crucial. 
but it seems as if he was talking about something that was equally as important. And the reason for that is because, as Jesus said to his disciples when he's getting ready to ascend, go wait in Jerusalem. Because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Amen. Now, I'm telling you guys this because this has been left out. You see, I imply this frequently, but I obviously don't teach on it every week. But there are three parts when a person gives their life to Christ that should take place. Number one is the giving their life to Christ. And they should be baptized in water because Scripture talks about that. But there's also a secondary event. It has to be secondary because Jesus told them to wait. You can't argue they didn't have the Holy Spirit because in the end of John, He said, breathe on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You've got to explain to me what's going on there then. If it's not, if it's the same thing, they either got it or they didn't. He says, wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. For what purpose? So that they can be His witness in all the earth. You see, this is crucial. It's so crucial. We have a weak church today because we do not understand how important this is. We walk around defeated. We walk around weak. We walk around pathetic because we don't understand this importance. Let me show you this one more thing. Because it's not just a matter of it being a New Testament principle. Like I said, we're going to build upon this in the weeks to come. But you also have to see that there were typologies that were going on in the Old Testament. And there are a lot of things that we read that don't necessarily make sense. But there are, in the Old Testament, when I talk about that, it's like, well, that's just kind of weird stuff, the floating axe head, talking donkeys. Those are all weird things. But there are parts of this that took place that are explained in the New Testament as examples. Now watch this. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5. In fact, if you have your Bible there, I would encourage you to turn there. I'll give you just a second. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. It says, for there are three that bear witness in heaven. Okay, three. How many? Three. You've got the Father, that's obvious, the Word, which is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And those three are one. So where do we get the idea of the Trinity? This is one spot. Okay? Those three, individually, are as one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now, what are we talking about? The water, the spirit, and the blood. Water, baptism, the blood, salvation, but the Holy Spirit. What if he was saying that typology that was going on? When I get saved, I become a new creation. And when I'm water baptized, it's a symbol of the old man who was buried with Christ and resurrected from the dead. But when I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit, I get the power to walk in the new. Now, there's another part of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1, flip over to there. Again, we're seeing the three agreeing as one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to start, over, uh, start in verse 1. It says, moreover, brethren. So whatever he's talking about before, he's talking about this is important. I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses 
in the cloud, and in the sea. Now, what do we have here? Let's stop for a second. Moses was always a type of Christ. He was a deliverer. You were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea. So he's talking about events that took place prior to this, in the Exodus. So that word baptism can't just mean dunking in water, right? It's got to be more than that. They were baptized into Moses, type of Christ. In the cloud, which is a type of the Holy Spirit. And in the sea, water baptism. We see these three. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. Were they spiritual food and spiritual drinks they were drinking and eating? No. They were natural. They were brought forth spiritually. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's weird. Okay? That rock was apparently following them around the wilderness. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in, the, in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. All these things happened to them as example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. What I'm showing you is the idea of this three baptism wasn't a new thing. It might be a new revelation, but it wasn't a new thing. There was types that were taking place in the Old. The New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament revealed. And Moses, the cloud, and the sea were symbols of this baptism. And why was this written down? For our benefit. Why did this happen to him? For our admonition. So you guys see this? Again, I could expand upon this, but we'd be here a lot longer. I want you to get the basics of this. There is salvation through Christ alone. We are then baptized in water as a symbol of that salvation, of going into the grave with Christ and coming out new. As in other words, we're now a follower of Christ and we're announcing it to the world, just as they did. But that third part, where Jesus himself baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with power, that was the promise of the Father. And if you haven't picked up on something, Whatever the Father promises, He does. And whatever He promises is crucial. We're just getting started, okay? Bear with me, because we're going to expand upon this, but this is so important. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that we can know it and understand it, and that You continue to reveal it to us. And Lord, that we will not stay where we are, but we will have a desire to get everything that You have for us, Lord. We never lose sight of who we are because of You. And what you've done for us. And so, Lord, we give you glory and honor today. That our hearts are yours. Our minds are yours. And all that we say and do belongs to you. To bring you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you in Foundations.